Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, a man of many talents and interesting things to say, uh, David Olney. He's an associate lecturer at a place called Polier, which is a weird acronym. It's uh, Politics and International Relations, uh, part of the University of Adelaide. Last time we spoke on various topics, this time... You know, Dave told me that uh, he was born blind, so I wanted to ask him what that's like, because I've always been curious about that. And then um, he spoke briefly last time on war and how it's perceived by different people that are involved at all levels of, of a conflict, which is also interesting. So this will probably be a hybrid of, of those two, but uh, welcome back, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. It was a pleasure last time, and I'm looking forward to today. Yeah. So tell me... Um, you know, this would normally be something I'd be shy to ask somebody because I feel like it's rude. But what is it like in your daily experience being blind? And how do you, when you relate to people, like, what have you noticed? Okay, I suppose the best way to sort of try and answer this is to say how it's changed from being little and having about, I probably, at best, I guess I had about 5% vision. And that was pretty much gone by the end of high school. So I think, in a sense, in the transition, there's lots of interesting things. So as a little kid, 5% vision was enough to be able to go to a normal kindergarten, but not really be involved in any activity that or you know, involved kicking a ball around or throwing a ball around or doing anything that meant needed to be able to look and find something. So I was the kid that would always be with the huge pile of Lego and the other kids who like Lego or the kid who would be in the sand pit. So at that age and with 5% vision, I was already aware it was different and there's some things I couldn't do. So find the things I could do and engage with the people who like doing them. So I think out of that came a first really important lesson. There are going to be limitations and you can either butt against them or you can find things you can do them well. The secondary thing, and I don't know what age I would have got the language to be able to explain this properly, but realizing you've got to learn to get along with people. Like I, by nature, I'm quite a shy person, which people just don't believe because I've spent a lifetime learning not to be. So the the two big lessons of my childhood were really work out what you can do and double down on it and always make an effort to get along with people. So, you know, when by the end of high school, because the special education world, the blind education world had the brilliant idea that seeing I had somewhere around 5% vision to keep me in the world of using a massive magnification. So, you know, the closed circuit TV where I was, you know, reading words that were literally, you know, 10 inches high. Oh, wow. Well, so this is when you're younger. You Again, you yeah. were born with some vision. Yeah. So what does that mean, 5% vision? Does that mean, what would you see? Would you, would you see, I guess you'd see light and dark. Would you okay. see the same thankfully intensity have, as people? Thankfully, I have memories of color, which is really good because when people now tell me what a color is, at least I have some idea what they're talking about. What 5% basically meant was that at the same length as my arm, the eye specialist could hold up fingers with the right light conditions and I could get how many fingers 
about three quarters of the time. So you can read nothing on the eye chart, but you know, you can count fingers. So basically by using the massive magnification, two things happened. One, I wrecked the side I had because it was just so much pressure on so little sight. And two, I caused my neck and back all sorts of, you know, long-term pain by always having to sit in awkward positions to position my head correctly for magnifying devices or for closed circuit TV. So basically the vision survived long enough to get me through high school, what we call here in Australia, year 12 is our final year of high school with a crazy enough mark to get into a good uni to do whatever I wanted. But that was pretty much the end of my sight at the end of that year. What about intensity when you go out in the sun? You know, That's when you're an interesting little... thing with my sight is a part. Okay. Whole pile of things happened to cause my blindness. First of all, my mum had a super mild case of rubella when she was pregnant. And second of all, I was born nine weeks early. So the the rubella scarred my retinas. And then when I was born, again, I had a very deep conversation with the uh, GP that didn't tell her when I was 18, going, mate, do you understood you risked me having brain damage? Do you understood you risked me being profoundly deaf by not telling her? So we had a nice conversation about he believed in the sanctity of life and I believed in quality of life and we agreed to disagree. That rather interesting conversation. So in terms of what happened as a consequence of all these things, from the damage from the rubella, from popping out nine weeks early and them not knowing that when a baby gets stuck in a humid crib when they're born really early, if you look now, you'll see they either run the oxygen straight up the nose in a tube or they put patches over the eyes. And the reason they do that is to stop oxygen getting through the cornea. Because the minute oxygen goes through the cornea, the retina stops developing. So I ended up with a combo of the retina being damaged and then not finishing its development curve. Mm. So a few retinal cells, but nowhere near enough. And then the scarring on there. So for me, even now, if I walk outside and it's very often bright in Adelaide because, you know, we're in a very warm, sunny bit of Australia, I will still just flinch and look down and quickly put my sunglasses on. Even though I can't see anything, there's still enough cells you know, popping in my retina to go, that's bright, that's bright, that hurts. Yeah, what does brightness feel like to you now? Like, again, can you see any light? Can you see shadows or anything or is nothing? Uh, again, I'll give historical context because this is an amazing thing about how my family basically worked out what was going on with my eyes. Mum and dad started getting a bit weird out when you know I was tiny, like eight, 10 months old. That daytime, I seemed to just constantly be grumpy and I'd always be looking to you know, turn my head away from the light or find the darkest place I could crawl to. And then at night, I'd be pulling myself up on the side of my cot, looking out my window because the world was dark and there was a street light down the street. And there was just enough light that it wasn't too intense and it was interesting. And when I was a tiny little kid sitting in the sand pit that my dad and my mum and my uncle had built me, which they'd put under a beautiful big grapevine. One day, my uncle had been working in the shed with my dad and he walked past where they'd been welding and he plopped his welding mask on my head. So it took the intensity of the light right down. And for the first time ever, I reached up and grabbed a bunch of grapes. And mum and dad and uncle Al kind of went, whoa, now we've got a clue what's going on. It's not just how much you can see, maybe. It's also light. So light's always been a problem. So literally on the next week when they took me to the doctor and then took me to go get my first pair of sunglasses made, my first pair of sunglasses, like as a, a two-year-old, were literally as dark as a set of welding lenses. Oh, wow. To keep out as much light. So basically, I looked like I joined the Blues Brothers at two. What about your sleep cycle? I mean, you know, people, I guess, light provides cues. You know, I guess they call them Precisely. light gavers, I guess, to, for wake and sleep. What do you do to make sure that you're getting light when you need it so that you sleep normally? That's, again, one of those things. Now, even though now I couldn't, 
I can't necessarily tell you it's bright because my eyes are picking it up as the world is lighter, but I can pick up my brain telling me, look away, whatever that is, is annoying, which means it must be bright. So still enough retinal cells that say they don't like it, even though I couldn't necessarily tell you anymore, you know, how bright is it? What color light is it? What color are any of the things in this bright environment? Occasionally, I'll still get light and dark in shape. Like one of the last times I really remember it being entertaining was a few years ago, sitting in a pub with a friend of mine who has very pale skin, very pale hair, very pale eyes. And she was sitting there in a black top with sort of shoestring straps. So literally she was black until midway up her chest and then nothing in the same color as the wall behind her. And I just remember starting to giggle and having to explain to her what I was laughing at. I said, well, you don't actually exist. Clearly your top is dark colored because darkness is ending halfway up and then there's just nothing. You can see, I guess, a little bit of shades of intensity. Contrast, right? yeah. Contrast is, again, it seems to be if the lighting conditions are right, if the retina's not annoyed, if I'm actually choosing to pay attention to my eyes because part of them being not useful and part of them also getting pain signal from bright light is, well, why pay any attention? Just try and avoid them as much as possible. You know, I noticed too, like if I think where where am I in my body, it seems like... Um, I don't know, like there's a point between my eyes and maybe a little bit above them or behind them is where I feel like I am in my body. Do you feel that you are in a different spot because you don't really use your sense of sight very much? It's an interesting thing. You know, they talk about the whole bodied and embedded argument with consciousness. That you know, consciousness is embodied in us and we're embedded in the world. So everything is a link from thinking about it to being in ourselves to being in the world. And if anything I think I feel more connected to my body, you know, what it's sitting on, what it's standing near, what I can smell. Is there a breeze touching me? Is the breeze warm or cool? So in a sense, I constantly feel like I'm taking in huge amounts of ambient information from my body and from the environment around my body. And yet the lack of sight still has impacts. Like I'm a, a very serious yoga person. I do Ashtanga yoga. My practice is normally two hours a day, six days a week. And Ashtanga has several single foot balance postures, which even years into my practice now, how many years in am I? Six and a bit years. And my balance is still only average because so much of balance is visual. You, you know, you check, are you balancing properly visually faster than you check any other way? So my balance is okay, but the one foot postures still cause me more grief than they should for someone at my level in this, this sort of form of yoga. And my teacher, you know, he still occasionally will just shut his eyes and try and do the same posture and probably fall over because every day he's, he's using his eyes to correct his balance as he's doing them. Is it like those movies with, you know, where people lose one sight and then the other, or lose one sense and the other senses get heightened? You know, that, I don't want to say mutants, like, you know. No, look, this is actually pretty well understood now. There were some guys in the UK years ago. To become a London taxi driver, you have to memorize the whole map of London. And what yeah, they do I heard is that part of their brain, the hippocampus, precisely is enlarged, right? Yep. So basically, after they'd done the one in the London taxi drivers, they stuck a whole pile of blind people and did the same brain testing, and found that the bit of the brain that got overdeveloped in a London taxi driver is about twice as developed in a blind person. Oh, really? So you have like a super muscle, super wrinkly yeah. hippocampus. Yeah. More you use whatever the mapping bit is, the better it works. They think it probably happens to a couple of other bits that again, with extra use like muscle, you just wire it better and use it better. And the other thing that the research seems to be showing is that the visual cortex is such a big part of the brain 
but really in blind people, it basically becomes like just RAM for the rest of the brain. It starts lighting up for all sorts of things not to do with vision. So it gets reused. So this is where there's all sorts of interesting discussions now that if they get the technology to return vision, there's still going to be a massive problem retraining the brain because the visual cortex either will have had a little bit of use as a kid like me, but not have been used that way for a long time and, you know, has been reused in all these new ways. So there was a case, I think it was about 2010, they did a cornea transplant on a guy and gave him back a significant amount of sight. And it took him years to be able to do anything useful with it because they had no idea how to retrain his brain. So every time he opened his eyes, he just got overwhelmed by a kaleidoscope of images and colors that he had no practice at interpreting because his eyes had been damaged when he was like one. So his brain had not developed knowing what to do with visual input. So my wife and I have the constant, well, not constant, we have a repeating debate that if the technology comes along, I'm allowed to have technology or stuff done where my eyes still look like mine because my wife, Karen, likes my eyes. I'm not allowed to go cyborg and end up like Terminator in Terminator 1. But what do you feel like you're better at? I mean, what, what are you better at where people are surprised? Like, wow, how do you do that? I had a real aptitude for music, but the problem of using the white cane in my right hand all the time is the combination of the violin bow and the white cane meant my poor right wrist was just under you know too much effort. So I had to really, you can't play violin and use the cane if you're getting pain and you have to pick which one. So of course I had to pick the cane. I suppose the big thing with me is, you know, memory is the thing that freaks everyone out, how much stuff I can remember, my ability to process huge amounts of disparate data. So one thing I'd say is probably the big thing that makes blind people who've really pushed their brain different is sight is very much you focus on something, you look at the one thing, everything else is there, but it's blurry and more or less being ignored. Every other sense is essentially ambient. You can't just feel what's under one part of your fingertip. You can't just smell one thing. You can't just hear one thing. So you're constantly sifting, sorting, and building meaning out of lots and lots of material. And I don't know what got me to the point where I just sift and sort seemingly, you know, better than just about anyone I've ever met. Like, I'm sure I've met people significantly smarter than me, but I haven't met many people who can take a disparate set of information and see a pattern in it as fast as I tend to be able to. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Any examples of something that you found a pattern in that was like a big puzzle for a lot of people? Do you remember um, th- this is how I started sort of getting interested in stuff to do with security and understanding how modern war worked, that even after sort of, you know, 9-11 happened. It was like, well, how do we understand Al-Qaeda? No one knows anything. I sort of within a day went, well, what's the best theory to make sense of a group of people we don't know or understand and started applying it to what was in the media. And within a couple of months was teaching lectures on it. You know, two years later, a brilliant major in the US Air Force releases a master's thesis on the strategic culture of Al-Qaeda. And it's a you know fantastic document. It was available to the public for about six months before the US military realized it was so damn significant, they basically made it top secret and it's never been available since. But there was nothing in his document I hadn't worked out two days after 9-11. If I have all these bits of information, what theoretical tool can I use to pull all the bits together? But also, there's always a risk with theoretical tools of reification. You you make the world fit your theory. And something, again, I think it's a consequence of my sight. I don't trust my own theories. 
build into anything I work on is always a test to go, is it actually working or am I kidding myself? So I'd always say I've got enough you know, belief in whatever I'm working on to keep working on it until my test tells me to change it. I wish I could have been a scientist because essentially the scientific method is you have the best answer you can get at the moment, but don't kid well, yourself. Why, why can't you be a scientist? I mean, essentially you're a political scientist. Why couldn't you be a scientist? Or you're just too busy with what you're doing. Really, at, at the time I was finishing high school, I was incredibly good at physics and really enjoyed it. But I was doing all the advanced maths in my head, not being able to see to write it down anymore. And there comes a point where you can't do maths in your head anymore. And all the technology we have now where we sort of have maths ML, I could go back now and start from scratch and go back to the end of high school maths. But I'm kind of a long way into a career now. So, you know, I used to do quadratic equations in my head because I couldn't see to write them down. And that used to just be good for sort of giggles. You know, math teachers seem to think that was entertaining. But also there comes a point where they could only give you marks for the working out. So the problem I started having in physics by the end of high school is I could give them the answer, but I couldn't give them the working out. So another thing that seems to happen, and David Eagleman is a brilliant American neuroscientist. He's basically argued if you work hard enough and with clear enough process, you can burn things down into your unconscious. So all your conscious has to do is give the order, you know, do this. So I think a lot of things that a lot of people do very deliberately and very consciously over decades, I've burnt it down into my unconscious. So all I have to do is give the order to do it. So math was one of the things that to the point I could, I would just say, solve this equation. I had no idea what my brain did. In a sense, when I'm using the cane out in the world and you know I'm working with the map of the city I live in Adelaide, where the CBD is a one mile square, and, you know, pretty much I've got that whole one mile square in my head. I have no idea oh, wow. how I'm running the map, but the map works because that map has been built over nearly 40 years. Okay. Now that map has been interrupted this year by COVID. So for the first time in a very long time, if I go to bits of the map, I haven't literally used during you know, eight months of 2020, I have to go, hang on, I actually need to remap this. So it's like, okay, leave some extra time, walk down one side of the street, cross at the lights, walk down the other side, repeat that, put back in my head where the little side streets are, where anything really strange is, because I just you know, haven't used it literally for eight months. Sometimes I'll go back in my memory and I'll, I'll picture you know, houses I've lived in or places I've been and I'll kind of walk through it in my mind. But I have to do that you know, periodically and it's, it's rare that I do that, but you do that, I guess, quite a lot with the area that you're Precisely. in. So yes. I could see if you're able to, you know, most people don't think about, oh, these are the streets I drive and this is where this is, this is where that is. But you do think of that. So I could see how if you have that on your head, you could sit back and consider this one square mile you talked about and the placement of the buildings and the placement of everything. And you get a different picture of what's going on than other people would because you have to think about it in a different way. Precisely. And part of it is too, while you're walking around, you need to be going, what can I hear? What can I smell? What's under my feet? What's the cane found? You can't be thinking about the map. Again, we can only hold at best seven things in our conscious mind at any second. That's sort of the standard answer that psychologists keep finding. So the map can't be conscious. So the map has to be somewhere just below consciousness, or at least that's where I feel my maps got. I don't ever have to think about it except when I'm remapping. And when I'm remapping, all I'm doing is remapping. So I always make the point, at university to my students. Look, if you want to get my attention around campus, I'm not being rude, but you need to say, hi, David, tell me who you are and why I know you, because I need to flick back 
from the gear in which I'm moving safely to the gear in which I will stop moving and talk to you and fully engage in interacting with another person. Because while I'm walking around the campus and there's too many people and too many vehicles and too much noise, um, all I'm doing is surviving. If you're hanging out with someone and talking to them like we are now, do you tend to hone in on the quality and the timbre of their voice a lot more? Like, you know, what do you feel like you're better at in terms of reading what's going on when you're speaking to somebody? I think a lot of people can learn to control body language. A lot of people can even control their face to some degree to try and you know, control the message. What most people can't control is the level of emotion in their voice. And the more they try and control it in a sense, the more you get the sound of trying to control anger, trying to control fear, trying to control whatever it is. So there's a whole sort, you know, set of sounds of what happened to human voices when people are trying to control certain emotions. And necessarily what they're trying to you know, protect or hide from me, but I certainly know that they're trying to control something they're not comfortable about. Oh, so you pick up, I see, someone's emotional state more from, again, the qualities of their voice. Like I've yeah. heard, you know, someone is very upset about something and their just voice is flat. You know, I, yeah. you can, yeah, you can hear a lot of things, agitation, et cetera. So, so that's more of like your sensory input when you interact with someone. It's a lot of it, I'm sure, is auditory. Is there anything else you pick up? I know, you know how you can sense someone staring at you, for instance? That's a weird thing because you definitely get the sense sometimes that's happening. But you don't, of course, have any ability to check other than pick up your iPhone, point it in the direction, take a photo and see if it says there's a face in it. <laughs> so you kind of lose five seconds wanting to test it. But there are enough studies that seem to suggest that there's something going on that people can tell when they're being stared at. And I suppose it's one of the things I've realized with other people. If I took their discomfort uh, about being around someone disabled to heart, it would be very disheartening. And yet what I've worked out is most people aren't uncomfortable about you being blind they're uncomfortable because they don't want to say the wrong thing or do something stupid so until you work out where the discomfort in people comes from it would be very easy to think it's aimed at you being disabled whereas my observation from always pushing through that is no they don't want to say something dumb they don't know whether to offer help they don't know whether to get out of your way quietly they don't know whether mm. to come up and say hi and interact so I think what a lot of disabled people, or at least a lot of blind people, pick up on, my feeling is they can know that people have stopped doing what they were doing and then leap to the thing that is you know, the natural human thing. It must be about me. Well, it is sort of. You've set off a response, but don't kid yourself. You've set off a response. You're not, in a sense, the important bit. The important bit is them not knowing what to do next. So again, this is why I sort of taught myself not to be shy, because you know, I need at any point where the cane finds something weird or dangerous, or I get to a road where there's just too many cars coming from too many directions and too strong a crosswind to be able to listen to someone walking down the footpath, smile at them and go, hi, would you be able to spare me 30 seconds and help me cross this road? And you need to be able to do it so calmly, kindly, happily, but also accept that 75% of people will say no and don't take it too personally. Oh, really? You ask for help and people say no? Oh, Absolutely. Shame on them. It's something I've learned is to not take that too personally. It's some knows are they genuinely are busy. Some knows are they genuinely don't want the responsibility. And some knows they, they just don't want to be uncomfortable. And I would argue that in the world of everyone living life online, where you don't have to do a damn thing you don't want to do, there are an infinite number of people now who just don't do things they don't want to. Can you feel someone's presence if they're, you know, if you're outside or 
in a building? Can you feel someone's presence if they're close to you? Or like, what, what is that like for you? Or is it you hear their footsteps on the floor instead? Like, how do you identify I would say it's probably a combo of things. Like, as long as it's not an environment with too much white noise. And again, you've got to remember that if you're getting too much white noise from big vehicles, buses, trucks, stuff like that, you're also getting the ground vibrating. So I hate big, loud environments because I lose that ability to tell who's near me, how many people and where. But yeah, I'd say it's probably a combination of you hear the footsteps, you smell them, you hear them breathe. I'd say, you know, we have some sort of proximity sensor. I would almost think in my skin to be able to go, you know, there's a slight breeze in this room from the air conditioner and someone just stepped in front of where the vent is. So it could be down to things that if you needed to, you could nut out how they work. But on an average day, I'm not nutting it out one step at a time. I know that that cool breeze from my left has just been broken, which means a person stepped in front of it. And but do you, know, you do you feel like in danger when you're outside? Do you feel like you have to constantly be on alert? And you or, or can you be relaxed and still navigate and go around and do stuff? Plus, I, I live one suburb outside of you know the center of Adelaide, a suburb called North Adelaide, and I pretty much you know unless the street you know the traffic lights aren't working, can navigate my suburb in such a relaxed way because the map is so good in my head. So many of the people I will, you know, will say hi to me on a walk are people I say hi to every day. You know, that, that's, that's cool. really relaxing. Going into the CBD, I'm not relaxed, but neither am I wired. So I think over time, this is one of the things that probably determines whether a blind person stays using a cane or, sw- you know, swaps over to a guide dog. If you're really confident in your ability, but you also have the confidence to know when you're out of your depth to either stop and not go forward or ask for help, you can stay much calmer. So I'd say what I always am is alert without ever being alarmed. And you know, that's my point. If I feel I'm swapping from alert to alarmed, that's the point where I'm going to go, okay, there is no point going further into this building or down this street. Something is clearly not right and I need more data. And you know, these days, the wonderful thing is I can take out my iPhone, start taking photos of what's in front of me, you know, get it to do an analysis of the photo on, well, what's in the photo? What's ahead of me? And there's times where I've done that and three or four meters in front of me, you know, they've dug a hole and there's a barrier around it. The iPhone could tell you that? Are there apps specifically for blind people? Oh, mate, they're the most amazing iPhones. Like I am literally this afternoon going in to get my iPhone 12 Pro because the 12 Pro will be the first iPhone that has a LiDAR sensor, which suddenly means these apps that can describe scenes for a blind person you know some of them can do it in a rudimentary way on board most of them are sending it away to you know a mega server farm somewhere to do you know major processing but with the lidar sensor once it works out what it's seeing it's also going to give you exact distance to that obstacle so as much as i don't want to have to spend the extra hundreds of dollars to have the lidar sensor my thought was well if they're not going to do anything useful with you know sort of assistance apps quickly with lidar i won't get you know the iphone with lidar And yet I looked at what apps my phone was updating on Sunday and the big Microsoft app, which is called Seeing AI for helping blind people navigate and do stuff, has now got a brand new LiDAR channel. The really good app from Europe, Envision, will have a LiDAR channel in 2021. Blind Square, the very good app from Finland, they'll have a LiDAR channel within their app by the end of 2021. So, okay, if I don't go out today and get the phone with the LiDAR sensor, I'm going to hate my brand new iPhone three or four months into owning it and have to sell it and get another one. So I might as well just bite the bullet now. LiDAR won't initially be useful, but I'd much rather be part of the initial group of blind people doing the testing and knowing 
I'm very good at providing useful feedback to tech people. You know, I've done enough, you know, technical testing of apps and other things, you know, and I don't mind sitting and writing out 800 words or spending 10 minutes on the phone so they understand why it doesn't work or how to make it better. Should people feel sorry for blind people? I think everyone needs to acknowledge they're going to have an emotional response if they don't normally have a blind person in their life when they encounter them. And I, I don't know, my, I've got some wonderful, honest friends that have told me yeah. what their first feelings were when they first sort of met me and how fast they changed. And the first one is, wow, that must be hard. And the second one is, wow, I'm glad it's not me. Oh, and that's have, honest, yeah. Yeah, and I have absolutely no problem with people having those sensations. You know, something I regularly try and teach my students when I'm teaching them stuff about security, about war, everyone thinks humans are rational. Everyone thinks all the training make security personnel more rational and it does but you have to remember that the first thing that always pops into a human you know brain is an emotional response and all the training in the world is there to dampen that but it never switches it off entirely it dampens it and to not let it dominate the behavior that happens after so i think the best thing people can do is have the wow that must be difficult and then wow i'm glad it's not me and then go okay now how do i want to react with another or interact with another human being who may be lovely and interesting. I appreciate you giving these insights. You know, again, it's it's kind of like asking someone who's eighty, "How do you feel knowing that you're probably close to the end?" You know, oh, look, average, it's amazing second. talking to people with amazing experiences. Like about three months ago, now for my podcast, Blind Insights, we interviewed a hundred-year-old Holocaust survivor called Eddie Jaku, who oh, just cool. wrote the book about surviving two and a half years in Auschwitz. Well, actually, he went into his first concentration camp in, was it 1938 or 1939, escaped, was in and out of camps in the last two and a half years of the war in Auschwitz and somehow survived. And you know, wow. talking to Eddie at 100 was amazing because you know, Eddie basically was locked down in an aged care home in Sydney, but it still drives you know, when you know, they were allowed out, we're still walking every day out in the world until lockdown. But, you know, Eddie said an amazing thing, and I loved his immediate response to me being blind. And he just said to me the first time we were talking on the phone, he goes, you know, David, if you had been on the train with me going to Auschwitz, you would have been in the line with my mum and dad and died the first day. So there's times where being blind, people give you feedback about what it would have meant in a time or a place. And that can yeah, be very striking because Eddie was just saying it to state truth to help understand what it's like arriving at Auschwitz. Well, I've realized a few times, you know, like I wear glasses and I have asthma and things like that. You know, if I was born 100 or 200 years ago, I probably wouldn't have made it very far. Or at yeah. this age, all oh, I'd be gone. And most people I know, they laugh and they go, yeah, me too, for whatever reason. Well, again, me being born nine weeks early. No human crib, no me. It would have been really true, simple. True. And it's something, all these wonderful dystopian dramas don't deal with this or dystopian novels. We've been using medical intervention to safely get babies out of mums for a century. And a lot of babies and a lot of mums have survived and passed on a lot of characteristic that means a lot of babies and mums without medical intervention would die. So I don't think we really understand as a modern species, totally and utterly reliant on the technology we've created, how many of us are here thanks to you know, an invention that's now become commonplace, but without it, we would be gone. Not true. I guess if you wanted mind, maybe third time's the charm. Would you come back? Because we're close to being out of time on my side. Absolutely. Talk about war next time. Happy to come back and talk about war. Not a problem. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. It's been really cool to talk to you. And, you know, I don't know. Do you have any resources for people that are blind or, or 
live with or hang out with blind people or just, you know, your focus is more, again, the politics and the war and you're not a, really a resource for those people in that way. I'm not really a resource, but because, you know, when I started my podcast, Blind Insights, because so many of the listeners had questions about what it's like being blind and how do I deal with it and how should people sort of try and engage with blind people sort of to feel less self-conscious about getting it wrong. Uh, we did an episode of Blind Insights where we did about a one-hour episode where I talked about being blind and you know how I try to make the effort to make people comfortable so they can get comfortable. And really the only thing I can point people towards, and I kind of feel cheesy doing it because as much as self-promotion is important for your own podcast, I still feel weird doing it. But that's not a bad place to start. And a couple of blind associations here in Australia have pointed people toward that podcast going, look, this one hour is a good way to get your head around what a, you know, a very sort of thoughtful blind person has said about being blind and functioning in the world and, you know, trying to make it easier for sighted people to know how to interact with that. Okay. Well, very good. Well, David, thanks again for coming. And uh, I'm going to ask you offline to come again. And it's been great talking to you as usual. It was a pleasure, Richard. And I look forward to being back soon. Thank you, listeners. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.